Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. While we won't needlessly spoil any aspect of the movie we talk about, we will go where the discussion leads us. And so, it's recommended that you watch the movie before you listen. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. What's going on, Tim? How's it going, everybody? Yeah, uh, it's going well. We're uh, we're excited to dig into this one this time. This is a Canadian director's, um, one of his early movies that we haven't touched on yet. This is uh, Denis Villeneuve, and we're looking at Incendie today. Yeah, one of our um, one of our favorite directors. This probably won't be our last podcast about Denis Villeneuve movies. Certainly not. We're already planning to uh, dig into another one because uh, we really just can't stop talking about Denis. He's a national treasure, without a doubt. Yeah, we're a Canadian podcast. We're going to focus on a lot of Canadian material. Get used to it. <laughs> yeah yeah or stop listening uh but uh to get into Ansandi and just sort of set the stage for our discussion today Ansandi tells the story of canadian twins that travel to their mother's native country in the middle east to uncover her hidden past amidst a bloody civil war told in parallel these two generation stories examine the trauma and effects of cyclical violence based on the play of the same name by waji muad Ansandi premiered september 4th 2010 we also want to include a note that it is available to stream currently on Crave, Stars, or as a digital rental, uh, but stay tuned with our show notes, and that'll be the most up-to-date way of knowing how to watch this film. Yeah, we have found recently that even between us recording an episode and then publishing it, um, a streaming site may lose or gain a certain movie that we talk about, so always check the show notes. Uh, so I guess like the tagline for the movie, which is not our worst one yet, <laughs> the search began at the opening of their mother's will which is just a more intriguing tagline than we're used to getting on this podcast. Yeah, you know, a tagline can sometimes give away a bit too much of uh, what's going on in the movie, but this really just sort of sets the stage for what's going on. Yeah, I don't want to go ahead and say that this is like a mystery movie because it definitely doesn't have that feeling of a whodunit or a mystery, but there is a central core mystery to be solved, uh, and it's a pretty big, it's a pretty big one. Yeah, it goes places, I'd say, the movie as a whole, where you don't really expect. And by the end of it, I think you are starting to do some mental math and resetting your perspective on the movie as a whole. It does some pretty amazing things. And um, before we dig into the plot and things like that, maybe we can talk about some of the context of the movie and Ensemble in the big picture. Right. So very modest budget, $6.5 million. Uh, you know, Denis Villeneuve had not had too much of an established career by this point, but he did just take on a pretty serious project in the school shooting film Polytechnique, which is about the massacre at Polytechnique Institute of Technology in Quebec. So this is his fourth film coming off of August 32nd on Earth, Maelstrom and Polytechnique. Uh, but after this, Villeneuve's career launched into the stratosphere with Prisoners, Enemy, Sicario, Arrival, Blade Runner 2049, and the upcoming Dune film. So we really wanted to get ahead of the curb on this one and talk about him and Ensemble, the movie that seemingly launched his international status as an A-list director. Yeah, around Ensemble and before it, I think it'd be fair to say that he was really sort of just set in as a Quebecois director or a Canadian director, certainly in your festivals and, and being spoken of within the country around there um, and, and certainly within North America. But this is the one that, yeah, it turns the page for him and he starts doing uh, full English language movies and things that are more four quadrant appropriate and, and are going to be sold on a global scale. Well, right after this, you know, he gets two movies with Jake Gyllenhaal, who was kind of at his peak in those years you know coming off of nightcrawler and in, in that prime jake gyllenhaal era mm -hmm. 
this is like not this was a pretty big deal you know like seeing a canadian filmmaker emerge in this way this prominently it was a pretty inspiring for a lot of young filmmakers here absolutely and i think it makes sense when after you've seen ansandi to consider how it does have more of a global reach he's taking a wider look at bigger issues that can apply further outside of more provincial or even just national things like his earlier films and he he did it on the 6.5 million dollar budget i think this movie looks really good i think he does a lot with not a lot and you know like you said geographically speaking this movie travels quite a distance to bring us this story and for such a modest budget it's really well done but you know it's probably enough of our usual praising at the beginning of the episode Mm -hmm. let's dive into some of the context here i want to Tell us a bit about the title, Tim. Yeah, so for our viewers out there who have as poor a grasp on French as I do, it might help you to learn that. So the title, Ensendie, can be translated to fires or in some contexts and in some articles that we've looked up, they use the term conflagration, which refers to a large destructive fire. It threatens human life. It threatens landscape. It's something large and, and all-consuming. And uh, it Metaphorically, I think this extends to the sense of erasure the threat to family and cultural roots uh, and the movie really explores these themes yeah as we're going to talk about in the scene that we do get to it's really the idea of a spark an incident of violence or loss or trauma that leads to further fire right one thing on fire inflames another thing and so on and so on and at what point can you stop a fire that's that strong that that is in that um, hot of a blaze I think it considers all these things. I think it's a really applicable uh, metaphor for the movie. Yeah, the movie's not coming out and saying, you know, here's how we fix the problem. I think it is simply highlighting some significant nuance to a global issue of war and violence. And it really does allow you to contemplate the meanings of the film as the viewer and kind of extrapolate what you want from the film. But overall, its message is about cyclical violence and that's what really we're going to dive into that's what we're really going to dive into today yeah and as i mentioned before so the movie ensemble is based on a play of the same name the play was written by waji muad and at least part of it was based on the life story of suha bachara who was in the lebanese civil war played a role in some assassination attempts and spent a lot of time in prison and this lines up with one of our main characters roles uh nawal who in the movie, they sort of show what she suffered through in the course of a civil war that's in an unnamed country. Again, there's many hints that it is uh, Lebanon, but they don't specifically name it. They allow it to be a little bit more uh, unknown. Yeah, keeping it ambiguous, I think, is a really smart play. It allows the issues to extend more globally and to feel more relatable, I think, for other countries versus creating like a direct conflict with countries who don't see themselves in this light. Absolutely. I think it works a lot better and it allows you to take whatever's being discussed and whatever is being concluded, not specifically as a judgment on one specific party or or group per se, but allows you to apply it on a much wider scale. Yeah. And so I just want to read this quote from Denis Villeneuve, and this is on the making of the film, which is a documentary piece on the Blu-ray. And he just said that it's not necessarily a film about war. I see it as a film about anger, the silence the wounds. He says that it is this anger that leads some countries to see themselves as the victims and subsequently to attack other countries. And so this is his way of kind of dissecting uh, cultural and religious conflict, but 
in a more ambiguous way where he's not, you know, putting one country under fire specifically, even though the context is built around the Lebanese civil war. Uh, the film was actually shot in Jordan because they couldn't shoot in Lebanon. So there is a lot of geographical context that is realistic, but his goal of keeping the location actually locationless and ambiguous is really intelligent for separating the issues from a specific country. Yeah, it's the cyclical violence theme that we'll keep coming back to because it really permeates virtually every aspect of this is what's the result of the violence, who, who is right, who is um, taking revenge, who is being avenged, these things like that, where after a couple generations of it, it's impossible to tell which side is which. And it's the kind of thing which uh, maybe in a slightly more higher profile movie was explored, um, Munich, Spielberg's movie. Right. Instead of trying to take any judgment on one side or the other it's more of just looking here's what this looks like at the personal level here's what it does to people and that's really what this movie does as well too it looks at its effects on family and on your spirit and on your quality of life yeah seeing the cultural and societal scenarios that these characters are placed with under and the restrictions that are placed upon them you kind of get a sense of why characters might react one way or commit an action that you might not agree with because you get their perspective so clearly in a movie like this, which I think, like you said, is really powerful in a movie that deals with such a confusing cultural war, like in the sense like a lot of allegiances are constantly shifting, you know, even within the context of Ansandi, Nawal switches allegiances and becomes an assassin for the Muslim faction, even though she's raised as a Christian. There's a lot of these confusing elements that Villeneuve, I think, simplifies by zoning in on the personal stories. Yeah, it allows you to really just see the effects as you would see them. You're not concerning yourself with gained or lost territory right. or, yeah, good point. or a government coming into power or losing power or a military coups, anything like that. Everything happens right on the ground level. And even in Munich, I'd say compared to this, Munich is a little bit more zoomed out because everything is happening as a result of Israeli intelligence um, sort of ordering it to happen mm -hmm. with Eric Bana's character. But in this you just sort of see Nawal move through her life in the way that makes sense to her at the moment, based on the last thing that happened to her and what she can do about it and what she can do to either make herself feel better or, or to, to try to heal some wounds that, that, that have been inflicted. So there's this continual theme of discovering family through trauma, uh, mourning as discovery, both in the sense that the twins are mourning their mother's death, but then have to go on this, cultural and geographic journey to find out who both their father and their brother is, uh, which is a pretty impactful journey for both of them. Do you have anything else you want to include about the discovering family through trauma section? Yeah. So I, I did want to talk about how in this movie, it, it touches on this sensation that I've seen other movies touch upon when they deal with the loss of somebody, loss of a character who's important to whoever your main character is, in that you don't really know them until they're gone. There is this discovery through mourning. And even in this movie, there's an early scene where Nawal's daughter is just going through her things, right? And that's this process that you do have to go through. You have to take an inventory and decide what you're going to keep and what you're going to lose. This theme is writ large in this movie where Nawal's kids, Simon and Jean, have to literally retrace her steps and travel back to her country to find out these things that are truly critical to their existence. They're things that inform what they know about themselves and a lot of what they didn't know about their mother, right? I love how earlier in the movie, 
um, especially uh, Simon keeps saying these things that sort of reduce his mother to being not really there or being difficult to understand or being disengaged. Yeah, kind of like he's inferring she's just gone senile. Yeah, yeah. And then as you go through this movie with them, you uncover these layers of trauma and these truly uh, monumental things that Nawal took upon herself to do because she thought it was right or or thought she had to. I think it's a it's a really powerful process um, to engage with as a viewer. Just the fact that the two journeys do overlap between Nawal's initial journey and then when her kids return to the unnamed country to kind of retrace her steps. It's difficult to say how much both Jean and Simon even know about their past because they don't know, obviously, about any kind of father figure or brother character. Their mother clearly never told them about either of those people. So we don't really know how much context they had about where they even came from. Yeah, the impression that you get is because they find out about this is something we haven't mentioned yet, but sort of the inciting incident is they they have to go find their father and their brother, uh, sort of at the advent of their of their their mother's death, and they don't know about either of them. So the impression that you get is yeah that their their mother brought them to Quebec and uh, raised them there and kept them sheltered from all that while harboring these secrets that ended up plaguing her to her grave. And she makes this request of her children so that she can she can rest in peace essentially. And also, I think, so that they can learn something about themselves. And she almost forces them through her death to take this journey for her and for themselves. Yeah, yeah. What I said was maybe a bit limited in that it had nothing to offer Simone and Jean, which isn't true at all. They they get to find out more about their existence and where they come from and what they represent. Probably more than and they bargained for. Certainly, yeah. That's There's some surprising revelations in this movie for the, the audience and the kids as well. Um, but I think all those things are, are powerful to their journey. Right. And so we are going to jump into the scene summary now. Mm-hmm. Today's scene takes place almost midway through the film. I think the movie's, what, two hours long? So uh, That sounds about right. Yeah, so this scene takes place 48 minutes and 8 seconds into the film and lasts until 52.52. So it's a four-minute or nearly five-minute scene. And I'd argue it is one of the most impactful scenes of the film. So uh, in maybe not the most rewatchable. So, you know, trigger warning for some pretty traumatic imagery in this scene. Mm-hmm. So amidst the revolution, Nawal searches for her long lost child, making her way through the dangerous desert countryside where she catches a bus carrying Muslim refugees. To avoid conflict, she hides her Christianity by removing her crucifix. Awaking from a nap, Nawal witnesses a violent confrontation between the bus driver and a group of Christian nationalists before they turn their guns on the bus leaving only Nawal and another woman and child alive. As they prepare to light the bus on fire, Nawal calls out that she is Christian and is spared by the nationalists. She tries to save the child by saying that it is hers, but the nationalists shoot the child anyways. Nawal is left alone in the desert beside the burning bus. This is meant to be forever the turning point in her character. Yeah, and as you had sort of mentioned when introducing the scene, it's it acts as the midpoint in the movie, although it doesn't lie directly in the middle of the runtime. But I think that's an important thing to consider, especially in how it's the turning point for Noel's character. Um, we'll link in the show notes. There's a great video about midpoints in plot structures and how they often fall almost directly at the midpoint in the movie from uh, the YouTube channel beyond the screenplay. So check that out for a little bit more context. Uh, but yeah, we picked the scene. It's not necessarily the scene with the most groundbreaking conclusions in the movie but it's an undeniably important scene in the movie 
uh, and it's extremely harrowing. I think it's extremely effective in the way it presents violence and being stuck in an instant of horrific violence. And I think I think Denis Villeneuve, based on the commentary, he really planned for it to be that way. Yeah, I mean, I've listened to Denis' interviews probably about every film he's done since this movie. So none of what he was really saying over the scene in the commentary surprised me. But some definite takeaways were that he does not want to create any kind of graphic violence in a gratuitous way. He really focuses on creating realistic violence that is very blunt, damaging, effective, and quick. Because honestly, I think movies don't show violence at the speed that it actually happens in real life. It's almost too fast to even pick up on the level of violence when things like this happen in real life. And Villeneuve is one of the few filmmakers who can capture this realistically in cinema, I think. Yeah, in, in action and horror movies, really, you get this um, process of decompression, which is showing the same stuff over and over. And I think that the schlocky way to look at it is back in the 60s and 70s, when if someone was being gunned down, they show you the same shot from three different angles, like four times as mm-hmm. they fall in slow-mo. As a big blood packet your, goes off. Yeah, when you have a big old squib go off, and it's really gratifying. It's often a good guy shooting a bad guy or a killer in a in a horror movie killing someone who's innocent. But it's a spectacle. It's sensationalized. It's made to be enjoyable. And Denny and and some other directors in, in movies where, where it works really denies that entire process and puts you right in Nawal's point of view so that you are in the place of a victim or a potential victim for the entire scene. Like when she wakes up on the bus, the camera almost like wakes up with her. Like we haven't seen the lead up to what happens with the shooting. She just wakes up and the bus driver's already in an argument with these nationalists outside the bus and they shoot him almost instantly. And we're just stuck in the bus with like kind of behind the wall seeing Mm -hmm. and reacting in time with her and because all that happens in like one shot you get a sense of how fast everything goes from calm uncertainty to escalated violence and like i was saying like it doesn't we're not watching each person on the bus take bullets here we are seeing the guns turned on the bus a lot of shooting you see our main character noel go down and then you just come to understand because of the severity of the moment that everybody on the bus has pretty much been shot. Yeah, I think you started by saying this. I think this is one of the brilliant strokes of how this scene is presented is that Noel falls asleep and the it, it cuts from the beginning of the bus ride to this point when she wakes up. So you're not allowed to have this like long drawn out scene where they see, oh, there's a checkpoint and we have to pull up slowly and we have to see the papers and we have to have the bus driver talk. Yeah, that tension's you're already gone. in it. Yeah, you're already in it. She wakes up and it's within 10 seconds, the handgun is pulled on the bus driver and all of it is shot from within inside the bus. The camera doesn't leave the bus until Nawal does later in the scene. It's so effective at putting you in her position. Another thing that occurs like after they after they shoot up the bus and they kill most of the people, you hear someone get on top of the bus and start pouring gasoline or some sort of um, accelerant. Yeah, great audio bit. It's so unsettling as you realize this fluid is coming down through the bullet holes and things like yeah, that. That's and right. the wall and and the other still living passenger with her child realize what's happening and they give you this moment of struggle where 
they move up onto the seats and then they try to move under the seats and the very few options that you have are exhausted almost immediately and the camera is underneath this rain of gasoline mm-hmm. as well so you're just you almost hunch your shoulders um you can almost smell the gas it's it's such an effective scene for placing you in there and and trapping you in there 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 is that one detached moment at the end when they shoot the kid and it's done from the extreme wide yeah, And it's completely separated from almost the whole issue. And I think that that moment, Villeneuve doesn't really talk over most of the scene. It should be noted in the commentary because mm-hmm. he shows it a tremendous respect by not speaking over a lot of this. And I think in this moment, you can just tell like this is him allowing us almost a sense of reprieve so we don't have to see what happens in any kind of close-up form. The little girl starts running back towards the bus and they just shoot her. And you just see it all yeah. from a extreme wide angle. Yeah, it's a it's a bit of mercy, I'd say. Yeah, for the scene. Um because the scene is so brutal up to that point anyway. And and yeah, one of the things that he does say in the commentary is he wanted to make it claustrophobic and I think he really achieves that. That's right. He's stuck among yeah. these dead bodies and and in terms of claustrophobia in film, one of the best examples I always go back to is Alien and you're on the the Nostradamus, I think the ship's called and one of the ways that they get you to feel stuck in there is you can almost always see the ceiling in the hallways right right? which is just a foot or two above people's heads and there's a lot of upward facing camera shots in this sequence when nawal and the other mother and the child are all crouched down and they're looking up and you see the bullet holes you have gas coming down through the ceiling the the upward facing shot in an interior setting i i don't i can't think of a ton of examples but i really did find it to be very effective in in making me feel trapped and closed in so this movie really plays with this idea by putting us in this claustrophobic space of the bus in the claustrophobic prison cells with Nawal. But then it also carries out this idea of the open spaces being very dangerous. A lot of like the wide open desert shots kind of derive this sense of danger. Even the scene right before she catches the bus, Nawal is walking through like the barren desert, sees the bus coming from a long ways, has to cross the street kind of in hides as she takes away her crucifix and wraps the scarf around her head just mm-hmm. to blend in this is like probably the most key example of the dangers of the exterior space yeah in a liter- well, in a literal it, way touching on that too something that just occurred to me is sort of you look back at the movie so far up to that point there are these instances um where Nawal faces consequences because of crossing religious lines mm-hmm. right the, there's an inciting incident in her story that involves her her uh, having a relationship with someone um uh, uh who's a muslim And that sort of, again, that sort of sparks everything off. And then you have all these instances where she has to keep going back and forth based on whatever context she's in. And that's ultimately what saves her from the bus. She takes out the crucifix that she had hidden to get onto the bus. The only way to get off the bus is to pull the crucifix out again and start yelling to the attackers that she's Christian. So the reason why I think this moment really alters her central character is just the fact that obviously she is a christian character she's spared her life is spared because of her christian beliefs but then she literally watches this these christian militants mow down this bus and light it on fire uh and shoot the young girl who she tried to save and one of the key images where we see i don't know maybe some of her inner turmoil put on display is when we see the nationalists ak-47s with displaying images of the virgin mary on them and Mm -hmm. you kind of just get this quick visual orientation of 
oh, I understand who these people are now. Mm-hmm. And I thought that our main character was on the good side, but this scene further reaffirms that there's no good or evil to take sides with. Yeah, there, there's no judgment to be levied here when it results in scenes like this, when you see something this horrific. And and in terms of imagery, too, the the nationalists are, are wearing the face of this man on their T-shirts as well. Oh, that's right, yeah. The movie also also harkens back to because that's sort of the result of this scene is that Nawal starts on this journey to embed herself with a Muslim organization through which she can she can get an assignment to take some revenge on the nationalists. And that that's as a result of this. Again, going back to the title, this is sort of the spark. This is the turning point for Nawal. It's what lights her on fire and leads to the consequences and and the events of the rest of the movie. Well, you kind of brought at this point when we spoke about the scene, like there is this great visual metaphor between her and the bus that kind of also fully visualizes that. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of really powerful imagery in this scene that can be read a lot of different ways. Um, Some of the most basic sort of filmmaking techniques that you have are to simply cut from one image to the next and you'll get your audience to associate the two things with one another. So at the end of the scene, the last you know, 30, 60 seconds, you have the bus burning in the background and Nawal um, kneeling in shock in the foreground. And then it sort of hard cuts to the bus being a, a burnt out husk and then cuts right back to Nawal too. And it's like that this fire burned something out of her. There was a loss here and really aligns the two and what just happened. And you had that point where it's the bus is basically a hollowed out shell by the end of this. And so is Nawal. Mm-hmm. And and similarly too to other events in the story in terms of her um, carrying a child and having that taken away from her, the bus carries something precious and it does not complete its journey. It does not have it when it's done. That's right. It's it's very heavy and it's very very multi layered and there's a lot in this scene that harkens back and points to other parts of the movie. It's it's a perfect scene for our type of podcast. Just what we like to talk about yeah it really expands and elaborates on a lot of the issues that the rest of the film is carrying and and yeah it should be noted as well Denis talked about this in the commentary but they only had one bus for this scene and its production so i think i think as always um should be commended when you can pull something off like that it's not always easy when you don't have a second dummy bus which you can shoot up and burn yeah he i think he said they had five shots of it mm-hmm. while it was burning which is pretty impressive you know, I, yeah. you want to think that, that bus might last a while on fire, but something tells me with when the flame is ignited that quickly, you're not talking very long. No, of course, it's got to be a really uh, sort of tense shooting environment for something like that, especially this early in, in, in Denny's career relatively um, and working on a on a six and a half million dollar budget. Um, you only have so much to work with and. This is such a critical scene, and I think they they pulled it off extremely well. Yeah, you know, it's one thing to see films shot in kind of rocky environments, but it's another thing to shoot a scene in a desert where Mm -hmm. there's blowing sand and you're dealing with lenses and cameras and very expensive tech. So it's very commendable that they were able to pull off what must have been a highly intensive shoot in the middle of a desert. So when I was watching this movie... This time around for the podcast, one thing I kind of picked up on about the scene that I didn't before is that this is also the end of Noelle's journey to in searching for her son, right? Because after this point, not to say that she's given up hope, 
But from here, her goals become political. She, she basically becomes a foot soldier for the Muslim faction. Yeah, this is largely, yeah, up until this point, Nawal is looking for her, her lost son. And whether she thinks that, you know, no, no child could likely survive in an environment like this after what she sees, after she sees the child being shot, or whether her priorities just, just change so greatly. This thing burns her out and, and engulfs her to such a degree that revenge and, and action becomes her priority. It is a turning point in, in terms of her intent and her goals in this movie, too. Yeah, because I guess this is really spoiler territory here. So if you haven't watched the movie, you should before you listen to this bit. Mm-hmm. But when you when you have that moment at the very end when Jeanne and Simone deliver the note from Nawal to her son, Abu Tarek, mm-hmm. she says in that message that she never stopped looking for him. So I guess that that was just something I assumed she never stopped and was forced to leave the country. But that was... She like kind of her her goal just changed here and became political in nature. So she goes on this venture to assassinate the Christian leader and succeeds and then is just put in jail. And then from jail, she's does she become a refugee? She's she's in jail for years. And then and then when she gets out after regime changes, right, um, she's able to leave the country. And uh, how do they they get her out again? I, I believe the regime changes. Like I think, I think different people are in charge by that okay. point because she's in jail for years. Yeah, I think it's like ten again, years. Suha Pachara was in jail for at least ten years. Who this was based on? And again, yeah, a little bit of extra context um, in terms of this being a Quebec film or a Canadian film. Um, in the fallout of the Lebanese civil war, a lot of Lebanese people came to Canada. That's why, especially around Ottawa and Toronto. In North Ontario, you've got a lot of really good shawarma joints, things like that. Like that's all a direct result of the fallout of the Civil War. That makes a lot of sense for Denise filmmaking history as someone who did want to tell stories about Quebec, but on a more general scale. So it didn't have to be movies that specifically were only about Quebec, but movies that either through metaphor or through allegory applied to Quebec's current state or past states as a cultural and at times, religious battleground? Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. I think he's engaging as a product of sort of the growth of his career. He's engaging in something larger here. He's taken on a number of different languages. They speak in French and in Arabic in this film. And he's overfilming in Jordan and things like that. It's part of the process of, uh, of expanding and, and, and taking on much larger efforts. Yeah, I think he truly became a global filmmaker with this movie. You know, his previous ones we talked about all being kind of Quebecois based. And this is his venture into global cinema. And now he's like an official Hollywood filmmaker, pretty much, Mm -hmm. who's hopefully going to keep tackling his Hollywood movies with such a global outlook, because I think he's really held a lot of the values he learned from this movie and carried them with him through his other films, most specifically like Sicario, another film that deals with Mm -hmm. discrepancies between cultures. Yeah, absolutely. You can see a lot of Denis uh, from his later works, the ones that you're almost certainly more familiar with in Ansandi. And and that's uh, among the other many reasons that we brought up so far why we wanted to talk about this movie. This is one that we really think people should see and should check out, you know, find online on Crave or on Rental. This scene in particular is just such a keystone for so many aspects of why the movie is effective and why the themes that it deals with are uh, are so pertinent. For a filmmaker who's put together, you know, dozens and dozens of 
critical scenes in his films, this is right up there amongst his most impactful for me. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. And just, uh, I guess we can get into our shout outs because one of the big things I wanted to call out for this movie was not only the on-location shooting in Jordan, which is such a gorgeous place geographically. Like, wow, some of the visuals are just breathtaking in this movie. And shooting on location, that's what you get. You get genuine desert landscapes like this and it it's you feel mm-hmm. it you feel the characters in this vast landscape and it, it you feel their sense of discomfort but also adding to that his team of consultants was very much a forethought before the production he very diverse he hired a very diverse team of palestinians iraqi jordanese and lebanese consultants that kind of all informed the worldview the perspectives how he approached talking to crew how he approached talking to like the non-professional actors who he was hiring in jordan and you mm-hmm. know because it's a pretty diverse culture there i think like there is a lot of different religious and cultural groups in jordan so he was hiring you know people who were palestinian and people who were from jordan so having this group of consultants in a movie like this for someone who's not from the area i think is really important and it really shows in his communication with his actors yeah and i think that's probably a large part or at least in line with the reasons why he was able to do this movie because uh, in our research we did see that originally Iwaji Muad um, wasn't entirely enthusiastic about having Denny adapt. I don't think he wanted uh, anyone to adapt it, yeah. yeah. But I would think it's this kind of careful consideration in all the ways that Denny approached making this film that isn't his story specifically but one he thinks should be told that probably uh, won Waji over. Yeah, I agree. This doesn't feel like Denis telling a story about anything regarding himself. This is something that he clearly sees as a global issue, a global story worth telling. And that all really shines through more than most movies of this kind. So I'm assuming most people have seen the movie if they're listening this deep into our podcast. But if you really haven't seen this movie, we highly recommend it. Denis Villeneuve's Turning Point. Yeah, absolutely. And my my shout out, uh, a lot more simple. I just think it's filmed extremely well. And it's a little callback to... One of our earlier episodes, the Gattaca one, uh, and just the metaphorical weight of swimming. Um, right. Later in the movie, after the twins find out some very troubling info about sort of their past, it hard cuts to them both swimming as a coping mechanism, right? They're, they're working it off. Uh, there's some really beautiful cinematography from above and below the water. And on a metaphorical level, it's a return to the womb. It's a return to comfort. And I just I thought that was thought it was a very powerful scene. Visually, I I just love it. You know, I think like it's the the first shot is both twins jumping in together, and Gian kind of swims up right away, and Simon just kind of stays in like his cannonball form, and he floats to the bottom. Mm-hmm. And I just I just love it because you're you're right. It's like totally just visual metaphor. It's a very on the nose yeah. one, but we talked mm-hmm. about it in our Gattaca podcast. This is all the return yeah. of the womb and the idea of comfort that comes mm-hmm. with that. You get a lot of character, even just out of the way that they swim, the way that they treat themselves in water. And again, anytime a director will take the time to explore something, even a scene necessarily with just a few lines and things like that, any opportunity you have to further express how a character is feeling, what their priorities are, um, I, I, I just think it's incredible. And I think Denny does a phenomenal job in this movie. And you know, it almost comes back full circle to this idea of cyclical and recycled imagery in this movie because you have like obviously some really impactful public pool scenes earlier and later in the film 
yeah. then you have this moment like in a very similarly shot pool like the pool is clearly not the same thing but uh you know the, the way they colored it and lit it it's very similar in how it looks visually so i think that this is just yet another connection between um Nawal's storyline and Jian and simone's absolutely and that that feels like it's right on the nose and it didn't occur to me until you just said it so i'm sure those of you listening out there who watched the movie you probably picked up on some other things that line up some some parallels in the movie that that denny included yeah please i mean if you want to hit us up with some comments we're always looking for things that we might not have covered in this podcast so please hit us up mm-hmm. uh, but with that i think uh we'll probably move to our outros for it and uh and we'll get some recommendations uh tay i'll let you go first because yours is a little bit more aligned with our pick this week okay sure so um a movie that we used to teach at the university in alongside Asante is a fantastic little movie called persepolis I believe it was nominated. It was definitely nominated in maybe one best animated film in 2007. Uh, it's directed by Marjan Satrapi, who also, I believe, did the animation and wrote the graphic novels uh, called Persepolis as well. This movie is an autobiographical animated coming of age film about Marjan coming of age in the early 80s and late 70s during the Iranian Revolution. So it's about her traveling to Austria, Vienna, where she meets a bunch of people who think differently about the world. She comes back to Iran and really struggles with being a young adult there. Um, some really fantastic imagery. The animation might throw you off when you first look up this movie. It's a very simplified style of graphic novel animation, but don't let that fool you. Some of the imagery in this is absolutely haunting. And coming back to that idea of transnational cinema, this movie might even be more in line with some of those ideas of oscillating between safe interior spaces and unsafe exterior spaces. Yeah, absolutely. I haven't seen Persepolis. I've got it added to the list, and uh, I'm definitely going to check it out soon, so I've still got Ansandi relatively fresh in my mind and uh, can check out some of the parallels there. My recommendation this week uh, doesn't have anything to do with Ansandi, but uh, just recently, as of recording this, uh, Ned Beatty passed away. Oh, RIP. Um, yeah, which is a real shame. Uh, just a high caliber character actor and i want to recommend a movie that you know it's not deliverance it's not network it's not some of the more obvious ones uh this movie is mikey and nikki it's an elaine may movie from 1976 and Beatty plays like a a frugal hitman like he's like a hitman who has has to do the job for the night and he's cutting his corners every way he can so that he gets as big a payout as he can He's a great minor character in it. Uh, Mikey and Nikki themselves are played by John Cassavetes and uh, and Peter Falk. Right, yes. It's a difficult watch at times, but uh, like all of Elaine May's movies, it's, uh, it's very honest, especially about men and how they act. And uh, also like Elaine May's movies, uh, I, I think it set a record at one point for how much he filmed for it. Something like 1.4 million feet of film, about three times as much as they shot for Gone with the Wind. Wow, yeah. Um, because she just wanted to keep the cameras running and catch everything that she could. Uh, it's a it's a really interesting watch, and you'll you'll probably see some Ned Beatty that you haven't seen before. So, Mikey and Nikki. Well, when you have the actors in front of your camera like that, especially like Cassavetes, who could just run with anything, yeah, mm-hmm. I could see why you use so much film. Well, it's funny that you say that about having your character, your actors in front of the camera, because there's a famous story from the set of Mikey and Nikki where. Cassavetes and Falk walked away off screen and like an assistant director called cut and they stopped filming and Elaine May lost it on the guy because she wanted to keep filming and he said they're gone they're not even there and she goes but what if they come back <laughs> right I mean uh, just... I like her logic 
<laughs> yeah, uh, Elaine May's great. Uh, we'll definitely get a movie of hers in sooner, sooner or later. Yeah, definitely. We have a really good list of movies coming up. So hopefully if you're into our first few episodes here, you'll uh, stick with us. We have a lot of fun content coming up. And uh, don't do the math or anything, but this is the first episode that we're recording since we put the podcast live. Uh, so thanks to everyone who's listened to our first couple episodes so far. We uh, we hope you're liking them, and we'll get some of your input soon enough. Yeah, we'll try and fix everything you guys think is wrong. <laughs> yeah, but with that, I guess we'll just uh, we'll say thank you very much for listening to Single Serving Cinema, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks, everybody.